About a hundred years ago, the world erupted in what was called the Great War at the time. It was the worst war ever fought on our planet up to that time. It was decisively won by the Allied powers who then declared the world safe for democracy and went home. How well did that work out? Twenty years later, sadly, the world again erupted in a war that so dwarfed the Great War that we now never use that term. We just call it World War I. The second war we called World War II, which was again won by the Allies, but amazingly was not followed by World War III, as many predicted. I can tell you by personal observation that many were predicting that at the the end of World War II. Instead, World War II has been followed by 70 years without another world war. There have been many lesser conflicts. There have been many lesser wars. But many historians call this time the long peace. What made the difference? Essentially... In World War I, the overall will was to win the war. Seems reasonable, right? There were people that had a larger vision from that, but that's basically what everybody settled in on. After World War II, the aim changed, and those involved in setting direction actually changed their goal and made their goal to win the peace. I'm sure we would all agree that the second plan was a much better plan than the first. It's clear that to accomplish great things, you need a great plan. God also has a plan, and it's a great plan. It's a plan for all time and eternity, and it's our main point today. Here it is, to be a disciple, you must make disciples. To be a disciple maker, you must be a disciple. Did you get that? That was a little bit of circular reasoning there. Did you get that? Let me read it again. To be a disciple, you must make disciples. To be a disciple maker, you must be a disciple. God's plan is simple, but it's also extremely powerful. It's focused on bringing peace that will last not for a measly 70 years. It's focused on bringing a peace that will last for all time and eternity. Today we will focus on one important aspect of his plan, and that is the question, is it about evangelism or about disciple-making? There's many aspects to God's plan we could look at, but that's what we're going to look at today. So let's look at the Great Commission. And uh, Dan had the Great Commission on the screen up there and uh, made a good point that even in doing that, uh, many of the apostles had still had doubts. In verses 18, 19, and 20, it says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. 
In some ways, this seems to be about evangelism. It's about going and teaching what Jesus commanded. It's about all nations. That's the opposite of keeping it to yourself, right? It's about going everywhere and telling everyone, how could this not be about evangelism? On the other hand, the central command in this verse is make disciples. Now that takes a lot of time and resources. That means investing in people rather than moving quickly on. That means going deeper with those who respond. Now, doesn't that create contradiction? Doesn't that mean you've got to choose which way you need to go? How can we do both? Now, I want to point out to you that actually what I just did there was create a false dichotomy. That is not actually the choice that we need to make. You see, making disciples is what supplies the means for evangelism. Jesus says that the need is for more laborers and disciples are those laborers. The best way to view the Great Commission is that it defines a process that builds on itself. So we're familiar with the concept of chain reactions, right? Has anybody seen that old movie they used to show where somebody would get mousetraps and put two ping pong balls on every mousetrap and fill a room with them? And then they'd get some, you know, maniac to throw one ping pong ball out there. And of course that would set off one mousetrap. And now you had three ping pong balls bouncing around. And soon the whole room is full of ping pong balls bouncing everywhere. Now, if you do that with atoms, which can be done, things get real exciting real fast. And in fact, that chain reaction is the principle behind nuclear explosives. Those are the most powerful explosions known to man. And this idea of chain reactions is how you get there. Now, what happens here with the Great Commission that Jesus sets up is as each one goes out and makes a disciple, now you have two. And then those two go out and you both make a disciple, and then you have four. And uh, then those four go out, and then you have eight. And it's exactly the same principle. Might take a little longer. It's a lot more significant than ping pong balls. It's about people. But still, it's about the only reasonable plan for reaching the world. As we make disciples... They become laborers for the harvest. As they labor in God's harvest, they make more disciples. The answer to the question is, is the Great Commission about evangelism or disciple-making? And the answer is this. It's about both. And in fact, they aren't two separate things. You really don't have one without the other. If your evangelism does not produce disciples, what are you doing? Well, I don't know what you're doing, but it's not evangelism because it didn't produce disciples. If your disciple-making is not producing evangelism, 
what are you doing? Because disciples evangelize. That's part of what we do. We do a lot of things, but that is one essential part of being a disciple is obeying Jesus' command to go to the world. So really, you can look at evangelism and disciple-making separately and maybe learn some things about them, but you can't actually do them separately. You have to do them together. They are part of one process uh, that keeps uh, building on itself. So our main point is to be a disciple, you must make disciples. To be a disciple-maker, you must... You must be a disciple. So let's look at how the Sermon on the Mount approaches evangelism and disciple-making. We, we've seen here that in the Great Commission, they both have to go together. What about the Sermon on the Mount? Typically, that's a passage that uh, people would look at as more of a building up the church kind of passage. Anybody here do many evangelistic Bible studies in the Sermon on the Mount? Probably not. I'm just going to read a few verses. I'd, I'd like to read uh, verses in chap- Matthew chapter 5, 13 and 14. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do men light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So these two verse say basically the same thing. The first says it in a negative sense. Salt that doesn't taste like salt, what is it? Well, I don't know what it is, but it's not salt. In fact, if you're in the kitchen and you see a little bit of white crystals on the counter, how would you figure out what that was? Well, you'd grab your chemistry set and, you know, put different reagents in it and all that, right? No, you just taste it, and then you'd know what it was, right? And so salt that doesn't taste like salt is not actually salt. When you interact with those around you, you should influence them for Christ. That should just be a normal everyday reaction. And you look for those opportunities to influence them for Christ. Now, some will like that, right? Probably most people won't like it all that much. doesn't matter. We are still to interact as best we can. If we don't do this, we should ask ourselves if we know Christ. If we're not actually trying to influence those around us. We should ask ourselves if we know Christ. Now, I'm not saying that if you don't share the gospel once a day, you're not a Christian. That's, that's not my point. My point is that the verse is saying that this is a normal thing that Christians do, and that if it is not a normal part of our lives, we need to figure out what we're doing. Now, in verse 14, it talks about being the light of the world. If we know Christ, we are on display. The verse does not actually give us a choice in the matter, right? You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hid. 
So we don't have a choice as to whether or not we're going to be on display. What we do have is a choice about whether our work constitutes good works that glorify God or not. So knowing Christ means that we're on display. What we do have a choice about is how effective that display is. What is it a display of? So these verses do speak about evangelism because they focus on our influence with others. Those others don't know Christ, perhaps they will come to know him. On the other hand, both verses do focus on the quality of our influence, and that seems to emphasize disciple-making. So you see how they both go together. A disciple is going to do evangelism. But if this person doing it is not really a disciple, it's going to have a negative effect. So we need people doing it who are actually disciples. Anybody ever seen someone who is not a Christian but claims to be talk about Christ and have a negative effect? Oh, yes. (laughs) I'm sure we have at least heard of such things. So the answer to the question is the same before. The choice between evangelism and disciple-making is a false dichotomy. The real answer is both. We must lead people to Christ initially if if they are to represent Him, and we must lead them back to Christ repeatedly if they are to do it well. So again, our main point, to be a disciple, you must make disciples. To be a disciple maker, you must be a disciple. So in Matthew 5, we looked at these two illustrations, the salt of the earth, the light of the world. I'd like to go on to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew seven twenty-one through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, I will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? And do many mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So the problem is that these folks who are doing these good things think that this means that they are in with God, that they are included in the kingdom. And the problem, of course, is that they are deceived. I don't have any doubt that these people doing it were sincere in their faith, and their faith was just wrong. Of course, uh, what brings this more home for us is that this also is our problem. We are deceived. How many times have we looked at what we've done and say, well, everybody ought to be okay with that thing I messed up on over there because I did all these good things over here. And uh, we, we're all running those little games in our head. This, uh, this could be any of us. We're so quick to forget our wrongdoing. I don't like to remember my faults and wrongdoing. Why should I expect you to? But we could say this passage is about evangelism because these folks clearly do not know Christ. But we could also say that it's about disciple-making because that process will reveal to them their need of repentance. Now, here's the thing. 
how do you know whether someone is really a Christian or not? In our day, many people grew up going to Bible preaching churches and being here in State College, there are many of them that come here to go to college. How do we know whether those people are just culturally Christian or really Christian? How do you know? And how do you help them work through that issue of whether they they really know the Lord or just culturally Christian? Well, I'll tell you what. You try to disciple them. And that will reveal what the truth is. In other words, you try to help them really know the Lord. And as you try to help them really know the Lord, it will become plain to them and to you whether, in fact, they really know the Lord. I'm remembering a number of times when guys that I was meeting with and and trying to disciple. And generally speaking, things were going really well. People really wanted to grow. And I remember just how sad and shocking it was when somebody said, you know, could we get together? And uh, found out that, yeah, actually, they did not want what I was talking about. They had considered it and, you know, did not want that. And in one sense, that's that's a very sad choice. But for one thing I'm very grateful is that he was able to find that out before the final judgment. That he was no longer deceived that he was okay because he knew he was making the wrong choice. And so just by helping people try to make good choices, helping them to come to know the Lord, helping them get into the Word, it actually helps them become undeceived. So we've looked at the Sermon on the Mount and um, some of the passages here, looking at whether this is about discipleship or evangelism. And again, our main point is to be a disciple, you must make disciples. To be a disciple maker, you must be a disciple. I'd like to uh, turn over to the parable of the sower in Matthew 13. I kind of debated whether to read this whole thing. I will at least read some of it, starting in verse 1 through verse 19. That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. The other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And uh, then it comes the part that I'm not going to read you. But I am going to mention a couple things about it. You're probably familiar with it. Jesus was alone with the twelve, and they asked him, well, how come you're doing all these parables? And then he says some things that are really confusing. 
And he's quoting Isaiah. And the thing that we don't realize when we read his quote from Isaiah is he's actually quoting the part right before the prophecy that Emmanuel is coming. And what he's doing is he's trying to help us see what God has to do to break through to people. And the problem is this problem of self-deception. How many people have you talked to about the Lord that have said something to the effect of, well, that's good for you, it's just not for me? You had people say that kind of thing? Or people that have said, you know, I just don't even know how you can believe that stuff. And there's a lot of other things that people say. Just a lot of ways that, that people become deceived. And so Isaiah explains that it's God that allows this blindness to fall on people. And the reason is so that when they don't see, when they run into things that really hurt, they can then be broken before the Lord and come to know him. So what God is actually doing, and Jesus is talking about that here in this parable, what he's actually doing is trying to use parables to make it plain enough to break through that blindness. One thing I'll just mention, and this can be part of your homework, this is actually where uh, things like feeding the hungry and healing the sick fit in. In other words, if you don't know the Lord and you're sick and you're miserable and the Lord come, walks by and heals you, does that cause you to reconsider your position with Christ? Absolutely. As, as we, uh, we typically don't have the same abilities that Jesus had, sometimes he does that. But as we take the opportunity to minister to people's physical needs, that's actually one of the key ways in which God can break through in terms of spiritual blindness. Throw that in there just because this is a good thing to look at. And um, this is one of the things that we want to look for as we're engaged in ministries that aid people, that help people, is do we see any spiritual results from that? That's one thing we'd like to see. But I'll leave that for homework. That section in between verse 10 to verse 17 and then back into Isaiah, I'll let you take that for homework. Uh, Then Jesus goes on and he explains the, the parable of the sower a bit more in verse 18. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for... What was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, he immediately falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, another case 60, and another case 30. So 
how do we use this? What do we do with this? One thing to realize is this represents a real good diagnostic when you're talking to people. You're talking to someone, and you listen carefully to what they say to you. Um, And you want to understand what they're saying. If they don't know Christ, it's probably not going to be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And you really want to understand that so that you can help them get past that deception. And it's probably more important that you understand them than that you give a systematic theology of salvation, right? Because it's going to be one thing holding them up. And if you can deal with that one thing, then we got some progress. So it's a great diagnostic for evangelism. You should also realize that this is just as good a diagnostic for disciple-making, discipling. And you look at the results in somebody's life. If the seed is being snatched up, then they're being deceived. If they spring up with great joy and then do anything, they're probably distracted well, wait a minute, that's the one is the thorns. So you could go down through this and say, which category does each one fit in? And, and then make that choice as to what's going to be best for helping them. So what it does is it helps us understand the deception that people are struggling with. So is the parable of the sower about evangelism or about discipling, disciple-making? And again, the right answer is both. Our main point is to be a disciple, you must make disciples. To be a disciple maker, you must be a disciple. I want to talk about some applications now. The biggest application is to realize that God's plan for time and eternity is his plan. It's not our plan. He is the author. He is the finisher. We like plans that we can get done today. How, how does that make you feel? You look down at your things you've got to get done today, and you realize, oh, I can do all these today. And you, know, and you just start chugging down through them, and you're just looking forward all day to when the, all the boxes are checked, and life is wonderful. God's plan works more on the thousand-year scale. It's his plan. It's not ours. It's our job to fit into it. He's the author. He's the finisher. One thing that we can realize from that is that it's going to take more resources than we've got and more time than we have. Okay, so that means we pack it in and go home, right? It's going to take more than we've got. Actually, no. He chooses to use our effort and give them eternal significance. So he gives us this huge job, and yet he chooses to use our efforts. Part of the reward that he has stored up for us in heaven is where he goes through our life and he blows away all the bad things and saves up those few things we did good and turns them into crowns that we can lay before his feet. So he tells us, that our efforts have eternal significance. 
And interestingly enough, our efforts will result in his glory, not ours. And again, that might make you think, well, yeah, that's no fun. Well, it will result in his glory, not ours, but paradoxically, it will result in our happiness. And he promises that, that it will be uh, result in our happiness. So giving your life to Christ is a step of faith, but it's also the only choice that makes sense. Giving your life to Christ is a step of faith, but it's the only choice that makes sense. And what I'd like to call on you to do this morning is to commit yourself to this plan that God has given us of going and making disciples. We live in a town in which the whole world is coming to our front door. That doesn't get us off the hook, needing to do something about the whole world. But what it does say is that if we neglect this opportunity, how in the world are we ever going to take advantage of that greater opportunity? And God seems to be working in our midst such that we do have more involvement with with international folks, being in partnership with the Korean church in terms of buying the, the Chinese church. There are going to be real opportunities there, and most of them will be on the individual level as individuals connect with, with other individuals there. So let me really challenge you and encourage you to do that. Let's pray. Father, we look to you. You're the one who came up with the plan for all time and eternity. And Father, you're the one that we have confidence in. Thank you for um, calling us to yourself. Help us, Father, to be committed to you. We pray in your son's name. Amen.